All right, we are in part two of a new series called In His Image, and the theme scripture is from Psalm 139, 14, which says that I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that word, fearfully, is actually would be translated as wonderfully complex. And when God made us, he made us as image bearers. Image, we alone in all of creation possess the awareness of God, the, um, I, the, a way of thinking and accumulating wisdom and knowledge of God. We alone were granted stewardship and uh, um, over creation and, not on, and stewardship not to uh, rape and pillage it into uh, you know, a desert cement playground, um, but to nurture it and steward it. And as image bearers, we have been made male and female. Now, male and female is a summary of a complex reality. And it's precisely because we are wonderfully complex, both on the outside may look simple, but on the inside, we are wonderfully complex. There are dispensations of grace, of bearing the image of God that are both male and female. God did not create any of us, either men or women, that was outside of what he, as God, possessed in himself. Okay? So it is precisely because we are wonderfully complex that the cultures of this world and science in general have such a difficult time coming to terms with what it means to be a man or a woman. And we are not the only culture in the age to have struggled with this. This is something that was very prevalent in the cultures, uh, religious cultures and secular, secular cultures of old, and the religious and the secular cultures in the New Testament time. And so, really, we have to, as, the, as believers or as um, God's children, we have to be careful not to... We have to be careful to discern God's image of man from man's image of himself. We have to be careful to discern God's image of men and women from our own image of ourselves. We have to be careful to recognize the sacred from the social. We have, in many respects, become so accustomed to the polluted that the pure seems foreign. And these mixed messages have affected both men and women in the church. They affect men and women all over the world. And so we want to dig into some of that. We, we dealt with manhood from a biblical perspective last week. And today we're going to look at um, a scripture that is really central to um, uh, the role of women in ministry in the church. And so I want to start by telling you a little story, uh, and this will give you probably a hint as to where I'm going with it. Um, so, and I want to remind you of the calling that God gave me when I was a young believer, and that is to be a sacred cow tipper. <laughs> now, hopefully, you're not under the cow that I tip. No. Early on, I didn't, I didn't alert people um, uh, early enough, did not handle people gently enough. And so sometimes when I came and pushed over a sacred cow, uh, I ended up hurting people. And so I just want to um, 
submit that to you, humble myself before you, that I am going to try to operate in my calling today to be a sacred cow tipper, but I'm warning you, please get out of the way first. Watch it fall um, and then receive from the Lord. Um, I'm just going to share with you um, what's on my heart. Now, the story goes, um, several years back, um, a woman and her husband showed up to join, uh, and they came around the church for a little bit, and then they came and met with us um, uh, and asked to join our worship team, and they began to share just a story um, that is really central to this issue. And one, um, the woman was a very gifted songwriter. She was a very gifted vocalist. She had deep knowledge of the word. She had a leadership position in the marketplace in our region. Um, she was very gifted, and she had stewarded those gifts and developed those gifts um, to uh, really a way that would bless and could counsel many people, including myself. Um, and uh, she, uh, she told us a story how she had served on a worship team at another church in the region, and when the worship leader position came up, because the person who had been the worship leader had moved and taken a job elsewhere, she had applied for that position and had gone through the interview process, and then when the elders of the church sat her down for a meeting, they essentially said that you are gifted and capable of doing this, but... 1 Timothy 2 precludes us from offering you this job. So the word of God was used to deflate a person's spirits and to discredit the gifts that God had distributed. And so she spent some time here um, and spent some time healing here and growing in her gift, and she's now serving as a worship pastor in another church in, in the region. Um, but I tell you that because this issue and this reading of Scripture and the way 1 Timothy 2 um, has been misapplied in church history has caused many of those occurrences. And it is central to our calling um, as a church uh, to be that of a kingdom culture where we celebrate how God has gifted his church, both men and women. And anything and anyone that God qualifies, we don't want to disqualify. So let's take a look. Now, this scripture, if you haven't read it in a while, uh, it might raise the hair on the back of your neck a little bit, um, but that's okay. Um, just, just rest that we will get somewhere um, and we'll get somewhere good because it's his word. So here is 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. Now, while you find there, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul. He wrote most, uh, about half the New Testament um, and many of the letters. And this letter in particular, he is writing to a young pastor Timothy, he's probably younger than me, if you can believe that. Um, man, no laughs at all. You're a hard crowd this morning. It's probably the subject matter. You're waiting with anticipation. Be careful where the sacred cow falls. Okay, uh, but he's writing to Timothy, and Timothy, he's writing to encourage Timothy on pastoring his church. And that church was in um, the Greek peninsula, and there were gross secular 
Gnostic doctrines that were in the culture that were convincing women to not marry and not to have children. Uh, and there were also, there were deep religious cultures where um, in, in the church where uh, really women weren't even being educated um, in the religious culture there at all. Um, and where young boys would be taught to memorize all the books of the Torah and they go through this extensive coming of age discipleship. Women were not, uh, were with, that, that was withheld from them. And so he's dealing with and, uh, and encouraging P- Timothy uh, to pastor his people who are, were both had a religious context that had some problems and a secular context that has some problems. And so he's writing to Timothy. Are you with me? Okay, here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. He says, Paul says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, how we got here... There's one of, one of my favorite women pre- preachers, Christine Kane. But while you look at that picture, how we got here is some common misinterpretations. So verse 8, when it talks about, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, nobody talks about that verse. Verse 9, all women that are true believers should look like one, to the point of being unfashionable and even something of a godly prude. Right, all kinds of weird doctrines out of verse nine. Um, you can't pierce your ears. You have to only. You can only wear dresses. You can um, only wear certain types of shoes. You can't wear makeup. You can only wear this or like. Th- there's all kinds of house rules that have been put in place in different denominations uh, from based out of this verse. Um, verse 10, that good works for women are reduced to staying at home, cooking, raising children, and showing hospitality, and anything that remotely looks like leadership is sidelined or discredited. Verse 11, oftentimes would be uh, misinterpreted just to mean go to church and shut up. Verse 12, this is where it really gets dicey, and this is the fulcrum point of the passage. Um, where, uh, where my friend who came here for healing and is now serving as a worship pastor at another church, um, this was the First Timothy 2 blockade that was dropped on her. Uh, and verse 12 says, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And so verse 12, this is taught to generally mean no pulpit or public ministry, but with a long list of unlesses, unless she only teaches women unless she only teaches children, unless she is on the mission field, uh, 
unless she is in a Bible college, then it's okay because there's some specialized knowledge. There's all kinds of exceptions, but the underlying premise is that women have no real spiritual authority from the pulpit, and women therefore cannot have any public speaking role or spiritual authority in the church. And even some denominations, um, if I asked Carol to come up and share with you what she's doing, um, they would have a shorter and smaller pulpit off to the side, and as long as I was sitting here, standing here looking like a goofball, then she could address you because I would be lending her my spiritual authority to address you. That's not a joke. You laugh, but these are where the, this, this passage is where those doctrines come from. Verse 13 Misinterpretation. Here's the authentication from the beginning that because Eve was deceived, women are second-class citizens, women are basically dumber than men, and this proves it, and the only way women can find God-honoring purpose is through raising children, which is the only way any real flow of God's grace goes to them anyway. Um, and that this, this is the, and I'm, I'm making light of it a little bit, and, but these are the things that, that have underlined the doctrines that have been made over time um, and have been misapplied to the detriment of half the body of Christ. So one of the ways that we got here is, I just want to say is, um, is uh, one of the ways that we've gotten this gross kind of mischaracterization is... Um, is this phrase, silence with all submission, that is in verse 11. Now, I want to alert you to, earlier in that chapter, this is 1 Timothy 2, chapters 1 and 2. So this is in the same letter, the same passage, the same general area of Scripture. And here's the first two verses. Paul exhorts Timothy again. He says, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all people for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now that phrase, quiet and peaceable, is the same Greek phrase that is often translated as silence with all submission in verse 11 and 12. Now, if I told you if I asked you, now, when you pray for all people to live and for all those in authority that we might live a quiet and peaceable life, would you interpret that to mean that I am asking and, and I'm encouraging that to be godly is to muzzle your voice completely and to, sh and to shutter your gifts and to be uh, essentially not to make uh, and not to make any waves in society at all, that you would be completely silent and never speak again, and that you would uh, not express any of your gifts in society. No. That we might lead a quiet and peaceable life means that we would live in harmony and at peace with one another so that our energy would be directed towards the flourishing, the vitality of those that are around us and bringing the gospel or bringing love to people around us, right? Instead of directing all of our attention and our energy to contention with one another. And men and women have been, in some ways, in contention with one another because of problems in our secular culture and some in our religious cultures. And so, um, but this, this phrase 
you know, it has even, the way uh, this, this um, um, the way this misinterpretation has gone on, it's gone on for so long that it even affects our Bible translation habits. And I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not implying that you should be suspicious of every way every word is translated in the Bible. That's not it. But under around certain things, if you have to make all kinds of exceptions to a doctrine, then maybe you are misunderstanding the original intent of what's in the Scripture. So, from a big picture standpoint... I believe Paul was dealing with just a few things here. One is is that women often express themselves more freely than men. Now, this is not a stereotype or an insult. It is not, and it is not always true. But when science shows that while the average woman speaks 30,000 words a day, and the average guy speaks 10,000 words a day, that's not just a social problem or a content. It's not even a problem. That's not just, that's not just a social norm, right? I, after I say my 10,000 words, I have to go sleep for the rest of the day. But more often than not, you know, if you talk to a marriage and family therapist, men are more often the communication problem in a marriage than the woman, more often. And it's more often because they don't say enough of what's really going on inside. Another thing is, is that husbands and wives bring their marriage into church. Now, I know none of you bring any of the uh, dysfunction or unhealthiness in any of your relationships into the church, um, but uh, in fact, you do, um, and we always have, and so uh, Paul is addressing that. Um, you know, verses one to seven, he's encouraging Timothy to exhort the whole church to pray for people, um, to pray for the believers as they walk in, um, and they, they, um, they um, in the culture around them, and verse eight to 15, um, Paul is encouraging Timothy to address the men and women. And in this context, it's primarily he's addressing um, husband and wife relationships in the church. And the reason why that's important is, is because um, it, in the religious culture, re remember, women weren't really trained in anything. And so when we focus on, well, they, they, they need to learn and we focus on the quiet and peaceable part, Paul is actually inviting them that women should be in church learning. And so we, sometimes we look at our, our cultural lens and we're, we're, uh, we're used to what our, our, our culture says is important. And so we're looking at the scripture and we actually focus on necessarily, not, it's not the wrong part, but we're looking at it through our lens rather than through the lens of the context in which it was written. And in the context it was written, um, women were excluded from that. And so he's encouraging them, and now women and men are actually coming into the temple together, and that's creating some social issues because now women are sitting all on one side and the husbands are sitting on the other side, but the women are actually in church. And so this, this dynamic um, 
was, was uh, Paul needed to address because Timothy was not, um, uh, he was not administrating or helping facilitate this new dynamic in a way that was life-giving. And part of that was also because of the pressures from the secular culture in which um, uh, you know, women were being encouraged not to have children anymore and they were, um, they were encouraged and it was this, this kind of this, this Gnostic cultural influence. And so um, Paul is writing to Timothy in that. Now, there are four themes in this passage that really are important to look at and I will go through them briefly. Um, and the first one is, is that Paul is speaking to false identities in verse 8, 9, and 10. Verses 8, 9, and 10, verse 8, when, it's, when uh, Paul writes that, um, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. This is an invitation for men to pray, to worship without anger or unbelief. And, because, and it goes to the heart of where many men find their false identity, which is their abilities, their, their, their hands. Like I, and that's where the expression you know, um, comes, also comes in, like a bunch of suits just walked in, right? Men put on their uniform, and they find their identity in what they do. And he is encouraging. He says, men, your identity is not in all the stuff you do with your hands, the place where you're going to lead is on your knees. The place where I'm inviting you to lead, and this is, this is honestly, you know, even as pastor, where, where do I lead from? I, I lead from the secret place. I lead from the place of being humble before the Lord and lifting up my holy hands. It doesn't come from standing on some high place and telling other people what to do. And he is encouraging men to lay down that false identity and to, I wish that you, men, would lift up holy hands and take your place on your knees in worship and recognize who God has called you to be. Now, in verse 9 and 10, in like manner, he addresses oftentimes where women draw their false identity is from beauty and desirability. And Paul reminds us that a godly woman's attractiveness is her character, not her clothing, makeup, and jewelry. But he is not saying not to wear makeup and jewelry. He is saying your identity, adorn yourselves, your beauty comes from your character, what's inside. Don't come into church and just think that you're parading yourself around, that that's where your beauty comes from, because that's what the Gnostic culture of the Greek peninsula was all about. He's addressing a false identity, both with men and with women. Next, Paul is addressing a woman's relationship with her husband, not so much a woman's capacity to lead. Now, verse 11, 12, Paul is admonishing um, wives to refrain from treating her husband like a child. Now, this word, that word teach in verse 12, it's not the word teach that would be translated like as to educate somebody. It is the word that would be used, this is how you would correct or train a child. Now, I know, wives, you have never referred to your husband as a child, and sometimes, right, even my wife has joked, 
you know, she has four children, three that she gave birth to and one that she married, (laughs) right? And that's funny, and we all laugh. But there's an underlying truth to that that comes from our culture where every Every guy in, in, in sitcoms and, and other TV shows are portrayed oftentimes as the bumbling idiot, right? And it's, it's this whole notion that under, underlies or underscores or, or fights against our identity, our true identity, the one that God gave us. And so what he's saying You know, in a culture where men and women sat in different sections in church, this was not only an issue of spiritual headship in the family, but an issue of peace in a public gathering. So my summary, if I had to summarize it or tell you what verse 11 and 12 meant to today, this is how I would summarize it for you. Wives, devote your attention with humility to the preaching of God's word for your own learning which is great. You've been invited into church. You're getting to participate in a way that the religious culture had excluded you from before. And do not, but don't listen with zeal just to find fault with and correct your husbands. In this manner, you will promote peace in your home and in our church because this respects God's authority and your husband's role in your family that God has given according to his own blessed purpose. These verses really don't address the capacity or qualifications to teach or to educate in general. Because if Paul means that, then we really should just quit qualifying it. Let's get the women out of Sunday school. Let's get them out of Bible studies. No Bible colleges. No teacher roles anywhere in any school. No training. No podcasts. No book writing. Let's really get all the women out of all the teaching roles anywhere in the church. Because we have so many qualifications and so many exceptions and so many unlesses, right? Applying this doctrinal position with orthodoxy becomes very problematic. Like we, we couldn't even function. And systematically, will we also ignore the rest, the remaining body of Scripture? Esther, Ruth, Abigail, Naomi, Deborah the judge, all powerful godly women that appear in Scripture to be teachers, counselors of both men and women. Proverbs 31 describes the virtuous woman as entrepreneurial, exercising leadership and industry in the marketplace, blessing all all meaning both male and female, all those around her with wisdom from her mouth. Does that sound like teaching, like educating, like giving wise counsel? The prophet Joel in the book of Acts talk about the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh, sons and... Sons and... There is no lesser female version of the Holy Spirit. Jesus esteemed women. He had women disciples, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna... Paul, the same writer describes in, of this letter, describes in Galatians 3.28 that there is neither male nor female in Christ Jesus. Now, that is not saying that we aren't both made distinct or complementary to one another in our giftings and our bearing of God's divine nature and his divine image. But what it is saying is, is that what you receive in Jesus Christ is not distributed to you based on whether you're a guy or a girl. Right? Salvation comes to you in Jesus Christ, to all. The gift, the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, and all of his gifts and his fruits come to you 
in Jesus Christ, not because you're a guy or a girl. Now, if he distributes all of those gifts that way, then maybe it would be good for us to not disqualify those whom God has qualified. 1 Corinthians 11 and Philippians 4. Paul, the same writer to Timothy, he describes women prophesying in church. Romans 16, 7. Paul, again the same writer, references Junia, a woman, as an exemplary apostle. Aquila and Priscilla, they jointly shared in both pastoral work in the church in Corinth and apostolic work in the whole region, and it's referenced several times in Paul's writings. Now, you say, okay, so are there, should there be or would there be more pastors and church leaders who are men than women? And this really gets at a point that is a little dicey because, again, what has been brought on us, we're, we have trouble because we've been accustomed to what's been polluted so long that what's pure seems foreign. So the world defines equity as equal distribution. So if we were, we were equitable as a church, according to the world's standard, then we would have 50% women pastors. Equity under God is not equal distribution. Equity in the church means that every woman who is gifted and called to pastoral ministry by God has room to exercise those gifts without restraint. That's whether it's one out of 100, 50 out of 100, or 99 out of 100. Equity is not disqualifying those whom God has qualified. Now, if you look around the church, there are fewer, even in, in denominations or associations or uh, fill, fill in the blank fellowship, there are more women who are, I mean, more men who are pastors than women. And part of that is because women uniquely have roles of really raising, bringing forth ch children and raising children in the family that men don't have. Now, that is not to disqualify or discredit men from raising children in the family. And it's also not to in any way make women who are, have not had children, cannot have children, or who are single any less or second-class citizen. It is just saying that women have been given a gift and a role in the family that men don't have and can't have biologically. And that's also there are also spiritual realities behind that. And so when you look at it, there, there probably will be more men pastors than women pastors. But everyone who is qualified in Jesus Christ, we want to qualify. And part of our church, the mission to reach, to teach, and to release, we really have a commission from God to release women into ministry. It's part of the calling that has been on our church for longer than I've been here. Now, later, um, and so we want to celebrate women in ministry. And I think I'm going to end there. You probably all know women in your life that have been traumatized or have been hurt or have been discredited. And there have been men, I don't want to say equally so, but men who have also been 
hurt and traumatized by the false identities and the house rules of religious culture and the false identities and house rules of our secular culture. And what we want to do is renew our hearts and minds, not only to the truths of Scripture as they were intended, but that we should convey them and lean on them out of love. This book is not supposed to be something that discredits and deflates one another. This book is a love song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at your magnificence and how you have wonderfully made us. And God, as we go into just this way of renewing our minds to your design, to your creation, to the truths of your word. God, where we have unknowingly just allowed things to creep into our own heart and our minds, Lord, that um, have been false, have been painful, Lord, I pray, God, that you would restore and renew those places in us. God, that truly we would be a people that celebrate how you have, um, you, how you have made us, how you've designed us, and that we would celebrate the way you have distributed your gifts and that everyone, God, who has received a gift would have room to express and exercise it without hindrance. God, we celebrate that as the culture of heaven. God, that we can have a foretaste of here. In Jesus' name.